0: here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 40 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Binance's billionaire crypto king says some very dodgy things, ETH goes ASIC, and Vitalik Buterin says many, 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 many things. And joining me this week is the one and only co-host. Uh, that's not Colin Platt. It's the co-host that is the wonderful Serafina. And Sarah, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Welcome back, Simon.
0: No, it's good to be back, um, and it's good to be uh, kind of back amongst the land of the living. I had a very good vacation, but we've had a big, big week. Uh, Colin's not with us, no GSAS this week. Um, uh, He's in Seoul for the Deconomy Conference, and I think he's got a front row seat to to some interesting activities, which I'm sure we'll hear about when he's back. Um, But we've got to get on with the news. Alright, first story. This is the, this is the Binance story. Um, the, we've got the link from, uh, Bloomberg. How a billionaire crypto king built the number one exchange in just eight months. Um, so, uh, the founder of Binance has grown his company from an idea to the world's largest Asset exchange by traded value. Um, so I actually saw a chart on this earlier that's um, from Bloomberg that reckon they're doing about uh, $3.8 million in traded revenue per day. Mm. That's, that's pretty big. Um, it makes them the world's largest. I um, think
1: they made $2 million profit in their second quarter. They've only been around eight or nine months.
0: They are growing rapidly. And, of course, they're a crypto-to-crypto-only exchange. So you can't take your dollars, your yen, your yuan, and exchange it for uh, for crypto at Binance. You have to have crypto to go to crypto, a bit like Bittrex and, and several others. Is it Bittrex? Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, um, Zhao has come out with some pretty interesting statements uh, in this Bloomberg article. It's, I, the one that's... Uh, that's probably not that controversial. Um, many people be convinced that crypto is the future. He says, I'm 100% convinced that crypto is the future. Um, uh, and he also says, um, I just know it will happen.
1: Which seems a bit a bit of a strange thing to say, really, given that he's, you know, as we've just discussed, quite heavily involved in facilitating it happen.
0: Yeah, you, you kind of you kind of want a trading venue to be somewhat impartial and you want there's this religion piece that Colin keeps talking about like crypto is a religion to a certain degree like if you believe it enough it kind of becomes true. It's worrying isn't it? But um, there's some points here from David Shin who's the president of Singapore based Asia Fintech Society um, saying that Binance lacks regulation and transparency and, and I like this one. It's like a van stopped in the front of an office building selling coffee whilst legit coffee shop on the streets suffer. Um, it's an interesting we're looking at it isn't it
1: yeah it's, it brings up nice imagery but it's it does play into the point that binance has done quite a good job so far of um evading any regulatory oversight and if you contrast that with coinbase for example he recently just received regulation in the uk which means they're able to get a uk banking account which means they can offer faster payments a service which is a nice feature uh, but as as you just mentioned, Binance are only doing crypto to crypto, so he's he's making sure that he, or well, up to this point anyway hasn't actually touched any of the traditional banking rails
0: and by doing that he's able to avoid certain bits of regulation in fact in a January interview uh, Zhao came out and said uh, we're okay to do things creatively to avoid unnecessary regulation Um, and he keeps the locations of their offices and servers secret um, to make it tough to determine which country has jurisdiction he instructs employees to keep quiet about their affiliation with the exchange on social media and he never stays in one place for too long.
1: Uh, no, but although the uh, Prime Minister of Malta has just welcomed them to, to Malta, um, which is interesting. So I think that will mean that he will actually, or Binance will actually uh, integrate some fiat to crypto facilities. Yeah,
0: well, we see that because I, I wonder if we start to see this this bifurcation. On one hand, you've got the places where you can go and take your fiat and get crypto that the more regulated, more friendly, regulatory-friendly exchanges, your your Coinbase's, maybe your Kraken's, your many others are available. Um, God, I always feel like I'm letting somebody down when you speak on a podcast if you don't mention them specifically. Uh, but then there's, uh, there's this kind of, well, we're going to be more decentralized, we're going to get around the regulations. And it kind of comes to the initial point of crypto for many of its true believers was, hey, w- we're stateless, we're, we're a global society, we don't need your damn government.
1: Yeah. Indeed, and we've spoken about the uh, decentralized exchange that they're planning to launch on the show before, so that's kind of another step in the direction away from this, as he calls it, unnecessary regulation. But
0: It's just optically wrong for me. It, it, it's kind of, uh, whilst regulation is definitely burdensome, like if you have to comply with every country that Binance operates in, that would be an extremely hard thing to do and operate a profitable business doing. Um, so I think there is a point to say operating a crypto business is extremely difficult because trying to fit uh, crypto businesses into existing regulatory buckets just ends up I mean I mean if you think about it I think I said this on the show before but if you were to operate a crypto exchange in New York you have to be regulated from a securities perspective you have to be regulated from a payments perspective you have to be regulated uh, with a New York bit license and then that's just for New York, then there's countless other states. Other states are up. available, and that's just, and that's just in the US. Like, sorry, it, it's a difficult place to be. It is. Alrighty, next story. This one comes from TechCrunch, um, who, interestingly, the mainstream tech press, even though the price is down, still covering this space. That, that's an interesting signal, just as, as an aside. Alright, so Ethereum, the, the uh, cryptocurrency, has had its price fall after rumours of a powerful mining chip surface. So, uh, as you know, miners uh, are the people that uh, mine the cryptocurrency, um, and they uh, they kind of play the role as payments processors in in the market. Uh, they Rumors of this new ASIC mining rig from a company called Bitmain have driven down the prices. And an ASIC, being of course a very dedicated type of circuit or microchip designed for a specific application. So, application specific integrated circuit is my uh, acronym of the day ASIC. When crypto started, the idea was every man and their dog, everyone and their, uh, their cat, every human and their animal could do, uh, could participate in running the network as well as the network being fully decentralized this gets us away from the risk of having big centralized bodies like central banks and governments and banks themselves who are evil and clearly must be destroyed because everybody it it would be democratized hasn't really worked because the economics of reality have have kind of centralized things and that meant that you know Ethereum and, and certain price dynamics were driven by how much could you centralize, how fast could you mine the uh, the, the uh, Ether, in this case, by you know, how fast was your chip? Yeah, Some absolutely. The along with the new ASIC changes the game.
1: Yeah, and, and that's somebody who's Bit- Bitmain, who's a Chinese company that's uh, mined Bitcoin. But they also run Antpool, which is one of the largest Bitcoin mining pools. And I think, you know, Ethereum started, they wanted to make sure that they incentivize the network to stay away from that kind of centralization. And so the emergence of the ASIC chips, they're not particularly happy about it. And actually, uh, one of the Ethereum developers, Piper Merriam, has uh, opened uh, an Ethereum improvement protocol, number 958, if you want to check it out. Um, so he wants to fight this. He's very upfront about not know necessarily knowing how to solve it. So uh, welcomes suggestions from the community, and also welcomes a simple thumbs up or thumbs down to respond to whether or not they should hard fork away from ASIC being the the sort of mining. Hardware of choice.
0: Yeah, well, so I remember when um, the Ethereum community, long before Frontier was released, uh, were, were having some of their early meetups in London, and there was talk about do we use CPU mining? You know, the route Monero and others have gone. Do we, what? What do you do to democratize mining? What do you do to make sure you don't have these banks that, that, or you don't have this centralization risk? And they came up with you know a rather unique uh, kind of solution that that is all theirs. And and a lot of it was about not having a cap on the amount of ETH and uh, and several other bits and pieces as well. Um, uh, and, and that meant that um, people were using, able to use, as they were in the early days of Bitcoin, their graphics processing units or their, their video gaming uh, chips in their laptops and, and, and computers, which was fine uh, because Ethereum was one of the most profitable coins for GPU mining. It was a way to make money for you and I, and that seems to be coming to an end, which in a way is quite sad.
1: Uh, yeah, that is quite sad. But I think that the Vitalik and the community have actually spent a lot of uh, time and brainpower thinking about the ways to incentivize the community to make sure that this really is a, a platform that is, is uh, almost democratically created and maintained and improved upon. And I, I think that's only a good thing.
0: It's interesting to watch this experiment play out in real time as uh, the trade-offs between sort of efficiency and democracy um, constantly play out with a lot of money riding on the line and the price moving every single day. All right, speaking of Ethereum, Vitalik went on an absolute Twitter rampage. So it's time for our Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. So this uh, this rampage starts with uh, a tweet from the 3rd of April uh, around 1224, uh, I think, AM UK time. And he says, I'm going to live tweet comments on the Bitcoin controversy of a principal section of the Deconomy conference for fun. Uh, and during this, he, he joked about the fixed supply of Ethereum tokens. Um, and then he actually talked himself into seriously considering the idea, which is interesting to watch his like kind of... Uh, Uh, flow of thoughts and and stream of consciousness right there he says if the community wants a fixed supply and people believe that the ethereum improvement uh, plan uh, eip 960 is a good way to achieve that then it should adopt the proposal if the community does not then it should not this is true regardless of whether or not my original intent was in jest
1: because i think the original intent was an april fool's joke he opened up eip 960
0: So April falls, we're going to fix the supply. Oh, wait, people actually want this. Which is kind of... Like, no surprise, right? I mean, people want to, with a lack of inflationary currency, in theory you push the price up, people who hold that currency will want the price to go up. So it was kind of logical that that would happen. Which, when you put economics and governance together, it's it's always this interesting tension, because what's in my economic interest might not be in the governance interest or the systems interest.
1: Mm, Yeah, true. And there's there's a lot of discussions. Uh, I don't know if anyone's been following the uh, ETH research. E t h r e s e a r dot c h, and he actually links to a post in uh, EIP nine hundred and sixty where they're discussing about uh, rent and how to charge rent on um, for un- not state Ethereum basically, um, which is another interesting economic incentive to be able to run the network in a way that doesn't, you know, I guess sort of gravitate towards rent seeking and and that, those kind of monopolistic
0: behaviors it was difficult you know, so Gas was one of the original suggestions i believe and and many others have, have kind of come about how do you pay for a world computer that is operated by people it, it, i don't think that question has been solved by vitalik's own admission also in this tweet storm and elsewhere uh, he absolutely savaged Craig Wright um, who um, Craig Wright for, for those unfamiliar is the guy who a couple of years ago came out and claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto uh, widely claimed to be a fraud and uh, as called, yes unproven yes indeed no, nobody has any proof um, that he is or is not Satoshi Nakamoto but Vitalik certainly savaged him on Twitter but there's also a video circulating around some WhatsApp and Telegram channels I've seen of Vitalik absolutely savaging him on stage um, so it it, I just, God bless you. That was that's fun to watch. So do check out that if you're on your commute or you're on your phone, uh, look for Vitalik at Deconomy um, and check out that tweet storm. Speaking of Vitalik and Ethereum, this podcast is sponsored by Consensus. Here's a quick word about them. Blockchain Insider is brought to you this week by Consensus and Collins in the other side of the world. Um, I've met many members of the diverse Consensus team and can tell you they truly have some blockchain experts, entrepreneurs, computer scientists, designers, engineers, and not Colin. Um, consensus has seven hundred people across six continents. I really want to see some penguins. Some consensus penguins, I think that's missing, Um, to enable the decentralized future built on Ethereum. And of course, Sarah, we're talking about how difficult that's going to be. So they've got some big, big challenges in front of them, but exciting if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, It's one of the more advanced development platforms. The decentralized applications they're building are focused on world-changing ideas, like creating a system for self-sovereign identity, supply chain asset tracking, and developing a more efficient electricity provider and much more. So listeners, why continue to build the systems of today? when you can build the future on blockchain consensus is actively hiring talented individuals across all roles and geographies to help build the decentralized web learn more about consensus projects and open jobs at consensus.net forward slash blockchain insider that's c-o-n-s-e-n-s-y-s snet net forward slash blockchain insider all right, let's get back into this, Sarah. Um, next story, uh, probably my... I, I, I don't know. There's so many good stories this week. This is one of my favorites ever. It um, comes from Coindesk. The SEC halts the Mayweather-endorsed ICO and charges the founders with fraud. There's so much going on here. Big
1: time. It's massive. It's got everything going on, hasn't it?
0: It's Such drama. Um, yeah. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, also known as the scary regulator, um, has halted an initial coin offering and charged its founders with orchestrating a fraudulent initial coin offering, and they said on Monday night. The agency said it charged uh, Surab Sharma and Robert Farrakis, the co-founders of Centra Tech, with fraud after they raised $32 million by selling unregistered securities. Um, While the startup claimed the funds would go towards developing financial products backed by Visa and MasterCard, the SEC said Centra had no relationship with either payment card network. The agency further stated that Sharma and Farrakis created... False marketing material, including fictional executives.
1: Oh dear. So yeah, that's that's got a lot going on there, hasn't <laughs> oh it? And dear, what's oh dear was. Oh dear, yeah. It's a polite way of putting it, I think. But I mean the SEC did warn the community about this unregistered security issuance back in their July report. Um, and it called out the now disbanded DAO saying that it, it would consider that to be an unregistered security.
0: Which if, if you're going to do something that looks like the guidance they gave and you're not going to register, you're asking for trouble. I think this is a really interesting time that there's also uh, an allegation that the founders paid celebrities to promote the ICO. Um, and they include uh, boxing champion Floyd Mayweather, who endorsed Sentra in September 2017, though his Instagram post has since been removed.
1: Oh, indeed, yes. So that, I'm not sure whether that's
0: necessarily important Floyd or not. Money Mayweather with, like, centricoins, like, um, just, just kind of floating those around. For any artist out there, you can make that meme happen. But the, what strikes me about this is this is another one where it's, it's a subpoena that's very quickly turned into a charge. The SEC went on a blitz of subpoenas. It's now becoming a charge, uh, and it's interesting to see that try and convert.
1: Mm, yeah. It does raise some questions about um, where or what kind of, I guess, what kind of projects will be caught up in this. I mean, this one, frankly, is, is an obvious scam. It's not scam, shop, I don't right? know. Yeah, yeah. It's, they obviously have created false marketing, marketing materials and issued an unregistered security. All of that is true. They made every mistake in the book. They did, yeah. But what about, I mean, how far do they cast their net? Hmm. and we're, uh, yeah. we're discussing the statute of limitations and, and you know how long all of these projects have to keep looking over their shoulder but if it's if you're issuing an unregistered
0: security you have been warned indeed the, the SEC be coming for you but what I love is um, Colin uh, old GSAS himself uh, who's not in a field but is at the Deconomy Conference uh, has managed to get his hands on some Centra swag so Centra were going to be a sponsor I believe of uh, the Deconomy Conference and they're no longer there they've they've kind of all disappeared. So um, I think Colin got himself a piece in time and a moment of history. Shout out to GSAS, um, whatever time zone you're in and wherever you are. All right. Next story comes to fortune.com. The title of this one says Bitcoin is still overvalued. So researchers at F Zurich and a STEM university. So I'm guessing that's not ether uh, Zurich, but actually a, a university. Uh, They claim Bitcoin's value is based on the network of people who use it, and they suspect that the currency is overvalued, drawing on a modified version of a model that assigns networks of value proportional to the square of the number of active users, an equation that can capture how speculative bubbles evolve and grow. Researchers at the Swiss University were able to observe how the cryptocurrency value rises with participation. I mean, no great surprise here. If if people be buying Bitcoin and trading Bitcoin, the price is probably going to go up. If people be ignoring it, the price is probably going to go down. I mean, have I have have they just done a big study to figure that out?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but I think that that is the headline. Yes, <laughs> um, they. I mean, they're, they're talking about Metcalfe's law, which was which originated while studying telecommunication networks, and yeah. the greater the number of the participants, the greater utility of the network. It's network effects. It's, it's no big reveal there. Um, but they they also said they can better track and spot, spot future crashes, which is very useful for those uh, hodlers out there, or those that are actually trading it, in fact. But you've got to wonder whether if they warn about a crash, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Yeah. Well, people warn about crashes when the price is moving down and people warn, people get all excited about uh, kind of is it a speculative bubble or is it going to go to the moon when the price is going up? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's just a classic bubble behavior. Although I do like um, th- this very direct statement from the article from Fortune that says their analysis indicates current support levels for Bitcoin in the market of a range of 22 to 44 billion US dollars. That's at least four times less than the current level. And that was published on the 29th, of march 2018 mm, so yeah uh, it's
1: currently around 125
0: billion market cap i think yeah so interesting to to watch this one for sure speaking of bitcoin um investopedia.com have a story where reddit have stopped accepting bitcoin they're going the opposite route to telegram it seems
1: yeah, it does it does seem that way yes uh but i i think these these two stories are actually linked because the reason Reddit stops accepting Bitcoin is not for any ideological purposes, but just the fact that nobody was actually using it.
0: Yeah, well, and this is part of the reason why a lot of uh, retailers who did start to accept it have actually backed away from it. Um, Retailer acceptance of Bitcoin is atrociously bad and the ones that did have it have pulled back from it because nobody used it. Like, what's the point in accepting Bitcoin on your website if nobody uses it?
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed.
0: And I think that therefore says that there's a nail in the coffin as Bitcoin... Bitcoin as a, as a kind of means of payment.
1: Yeah, as a medium of exchange, sure. It's kind of lost a little bit of its shine as its store of value to some people over the past, uh, well,
0: beginning part of this year for sure. It's storing some sort of value. But, uh, yeah, it, will it will it keep going? So many of you remember McAfee Antivirus, uh, John McAfee, who has a storied history and a very good Netflix documentary into his whole life. I, I believe started out uh, as, as kind of the... Well, it is most well known for the antivirus work, then became a yoga teacher um, in, in, a, in a hippie commune, uh, then went on to, I think, live in a, in, in a desert island somewhere. And after having lived in a desert island where there were all kinds of allegations about working with uh, local drug lords and, and uh, crime gangs, uh, he then comes back to the USA to run for election um, and during this time becomes a part of uh, all kinds of uh, political and criminal her movements and um, so he's uh according to CNET he's about, apparently at the moment he's charging $105,000 for tweets promoting ICOs um, so using his lucrative Twitter account the self-proclaimed crypto visionary tweeted to his 811,000 followers a link to the McAfee crypto team website on how the promotional te- uh, tweets work and I think he's been doing this for about six months but I think CNET just got around to covering it but we never actually covered this story in depth and God bless him
1: yeah um, I it- mean does this constitute investment
0: advice? That's that's an interesting question.
1: What kind of due diligence is he going through, if any, at all? Um, does he just, is it pay to play or does he go through and even like look at the team, make sure that they're real people? And there's well, not what is the Simon McAfee Taylor as the legal advisor yeah. on, like we saw on one ICO the other day. That was oh. funny.
0: Yeah, no, there's, there's some some weird things happening. And, and, all dressed aside, you can see why the SEC get angry at this stuff and why it, it it's it's kind of funny but also people are spending real money on this stuff yeah. um this is this is somebody who's clearly unraveling a little bit um on july 17th 2017 uh john mcafee made a bet publicly using his twitter account um that one single bitcoin will be worth uh, five hundred thousand dollars in three years um and then uh, he came out with another tweet, which is, uh, which I've got in front of me here. When I predicted Bitcoin at $500,000 by the end of 2020, it used a model that predicted $5,000 at the end of 2017. Bitcoin's accelerated much faster. I now predict, predict Burr coin, B-I-R coin, um, at 1 million by the end of 2020. I will eat my dick if wrong.
1: <laughs> wow, I have to say I wasn't expecting that. But then who knows what to expect from McAfee.
0: Well, there's this wonderful website, um, bircoin.top, um, which actually tracks uh, how likely it is to uh, lose this bet or win. So what they've done is uh, they've built a, a red line that steadily grows to a million dollars per Bitcoin. And uh, they've basically shown you the annual growth, the doubling time, the 10 times after, um, and all of their maths. And you can make your own prediction using this uh, this handy website. So you can see if you agree or disagree. Um, but yeah, currently um, Bitcoin is 5.7% below where John McAfee would need to uh, be to uh, win his bet. Hmm,
1: that's not actually uh, that far below. No, we've seen price moves of more than that in any one day
0: well you know to his credit he was at one point uh i, I think in december 314 ahead on his bet so you know, some volatility there for sure in his bet um i, I think he's a brave man to, to to offer that i do but what i want to know is how does he make good on this bet
1: do we know of anyone that took the other side of the bet
0: Ooh, the sec true. maybe oh now that i would love to see again um, there's memes that need to happen here all right. Um, for our finally story this week, I'm something far more serious and far more credible. Uh, CoinDesk.com um, report that Amber Baldet, uh, who was leading a lot of the work at JP Morgan, has left to start a new venture. So she oversaw the development of uh, their permission blockchain platform Quorum um, and a lot of the partnerships with the company behind Zcash um, and the uh, some of the work with Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And JP Morgan actually came out in a statement and said. Amber's extremely talented, helped build an, ex- an outstanding team that we have today. We respect her desire to start her own venture and wish her nothing but the best.
1: Well, that's a very nice response. Um, I mean, there's been lots of speculation about about what would happen with Quorum and um, JP Morgan's involvement with it for a while. And... We can see some of this starting to come to pass now. I think it's it's definitely a loss for JP Morgan. I'm sure Amber's new venture will be absolutely fine and... Uh, look forward to see what she's doing next yeah, hope I mean, she's still involved in the enterprise ethereum alliance actually i, I, I would so
0: what's interesting to me is that it's not clear yet and, and it remains to be seen whether or not this gets wrapped into the enterprise ethereum alliance or something else in some way because primarily the enterprise ethereum alliance as i understand it last time i looked at it was a set of standards like here's how you use ethereum in an enterprise setting it's not here's a bunch of tools and um, frameworks and code that you can go implement and you know Pull and, and, and kind of fork and do whatever else you want with. So it, it, it's quite a different beast. Whereas Quorum was more along those lines. And will this new venture be working with Quorum? Will it be something else? We, we yeah, don't know.
1: we don't know anything about the tech.
0: No, um, but Quorum certainly was interesting in that it was looking to solve for that payment use case. It was looking to solve for where we're doing trades. We know we need privacy. We know we don't want some other trader to see everything I'm doing and I don't want to see everything they're doing, or legally I shouldn't be able to see potentially everything everything i'm doing for commercial reasons so it was an attempt to solve some some real issues Uh, and i think generally this is is the bigger piece about enterprise you know enterprise is in a position where it's time to get real this year
1: yeah, for sure. And I think the, the work that Enterprise Ethereum Alliance are doing within the enterprises and both the, the tech community is, um, is really good. We're actually involved in a lot of it, so I've seen a lot of it firsthand. And it's incredibly important for adoption to have that, those standards and, and have that, that those two ways of working almost coalesce.
0: What I always found interesting, though, is um, I, I always describe it, uh, and if you're in enterprises, you've kind of got three choices. You've got Corda, but that's very financial services focused, and certain types of financial services contract. But now we are seeing, actually, that is being used in, in healthcare and in other industries more broadly, and... The feedback I hear from various sources is it's fairly robust, it works, but it does what it says on the tin, and it's not very ambitious. But it it really does work. Uh, then you've got uh, Hyperledger, which is m- much more ambitious, much more uh, community based, and actually ha- is made up of seven, eight different um, code bases within it. Um, much more of a community, much more in the open source, um, but much harder to to really get working in a live environment because actually it's not been done with the same focus as as a quarter perhaps or um, maybe there's more people with more agendas or, or, or more challenges there, but but shows promise. And then Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, bit of a question mark um, because Ethereum, the project in the open source um, and permissionless world, is very well known. But in enterprise, there are so many different versions of it; it's hard to know where to go.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that that is literally what the EEA's job is to do. Um, I, I think there's, I think you're right in sort of separating out those stacks. I, I think the. You know, Corda was designed with financial services in mind. Um, Fabric, for example, uh, was designed with enterprise in mind. Ethereum was not. As we've discussed a number of times, it's a, it's a new way of um, building a technological and economically incentivized community. And so that's, that's quite different to what enterprises are, are used to doing. Um, in terms of sort of silos and it's all very process driven whereas now it's protocol driven so that's it's definitely a a sort of far cry from what enterprises do at the moment and and that's why the EEA exists really is to build bridge that gap in between the two and um, yeah Uh, There'll be some announcements, I'm sure, later on in the year, which we can't talk about, but it's it's doing a good job.
0: Lots lots to do there, and it's exciting times. Um, And Just before we hear from our interview this week, I want to say a quick word about one of our other sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda, Um, and Colin G. Platt is not here for me to insult him about being near a field, but he does have some very nice economy swag, and he'll be glad to know that Corda is an open-source blockchain platform that allows uh, businesses to transact directly. And strict privacy. As we said on the show, Sarah, privacy is really important to enterprises. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets. And by real assets, I guess they mean assets that are traded today and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of an effort led by R3 and over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. Ready to build on today, and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Uh, You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by some of the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. All right, some interesting stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Um, One from CNN. Japan's online broker Monix considering considering to buy cryptocurrency exchange Coincheck. Japan. Just... Bitcoin and crypto is way more legitimate there because they have a virtual currencies law, I believe.
1: Mm, Yeah, actually, interestingly, they also asked um, Binance to stop operating in Japan because it was not registered, uh, whereas Monex presumably is.
0: Yeah, uh, interesting place um, in that it appears to be Japan is the place where you can operate a legitimate business and do well want um, to watch for sure. Uh, one from CCN, uh, Australian cryptocurrency exchanges are under regulation starting from today. Um, I think they're just applying some AML rules to them, so uh, a bit like we saw with South Korea several months ago. Um, and a link to the NVIDIA CEO saying cryptocurrency is here to stay, although I do suspect that's in his interest given uh, the amount of GPUs that have been selling uh, in, in the past uh, 12 months or so. Alright, uh, next up we have our interview, and it's an interview we were recorded some months ago, but one I really enjoyed um, with a chap called Pavel Baines, who's the CEO of Blue Zell Networks. Over to the interview. We are here with Pavel Baines from Blue Zell. Pavel, how are you, sir? I am doing excellent. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Uh, You're from uh, BlueZell. I guess we'll get into a little bit more about Zell in a moment and uh, who who that organization is and what it does. But can you tell me first a little bit more about yourself? How did you discover the subject of blockchain? How did you discover this whole area?
2: Yeah, it was interesting. It was just over three years ago, I was um, running, I was in digital media. That was my background and uh, I was running a digital media company around a, a kid's Book publishing platform on the iPad. And uh, so during that time, you know, I kind of discovered what, you know, I kept hearing about Bitcoin. This was around 2014, mid 2014, and said, okay, what is this thing all about? And uh, read the white paper and just got really enamored by the technology and the underlying you know, product beneath it, beneath it, uh, underneath Bitcoin, which, as you all know, is blockchain. Um, so from there, I just got, you know, it's a rabbit hole. Once you start reading one thing, watching a video, you just go further and deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, till it kind of consumes you. And then uh, and that's when I just started. Like, you know what? This is the next this is probably the next wave of the Internet. So I got to start understanding this thing now and want to be part of that. And that's how I got into it.
0: I love that uh, this is the next wave of the internet. What was it about you that made you think it was the next wave of the internet? What was it about this subject that made you think, hmm, this is definitely more than just uh, a type of tech. There's something here that's truly different. Was it decentralization? What What was it that drew you?
2: I think the fundamental principles of uh, the, the decentralization the market economics. It's like blockchain had everything and Bitcoin in it that, you know, if you go to school and study is like, you know, game theory, economics, mathematics, science, tech, all combined into one. And then the more you kind of start understanding is like, it just made so much more sense. And then you start looking at, uh, then as you're reading it, you start applying it to, you start hearing about, you know, reading old articles about from 1992, 93, 94, about what people were saying about the internet at that time that, oh, you know, it's used for this, that, it's not going to scale, all these issues. And you're like, this is the exact same story. So, you know, it's got to go.
0: Yeah, there was definitely some similarities about what people were saying in the internet in its early days, it will never scale, it will never be fast enough. Can, can you define decentralization for me and why it's different to the internet we have today, and what benefits it gives us?
2: For me, the easiest way when I first heard about really decentralization was through distributed computing. Uh, probably about fifteen sixteen years ago uh through the SETI project, which is you know search for extra extraterrestrial life um and you know extra extraterrestrial intelligence or it's easy you know it's looking for aliens in space so I remember reading about that how um you know they were thinking about hey let's power let's call the SETI project, power all this unused uh computer power around the world uh harness it, and with that we can actually you know, analyze or scan more of the universe to look for aliens. So that was my first time hearing about it, and that's really what it is, is that you know, harnessing the power of all this unused equipment, instead of having power centralized in one spot where it can have multiple breakpoints or clogs or inefficiencies or security issues, if you decentralize it, then there's no real single point of attack. So it's much better on security. Uh, reliability because if one thing goes down the whole network could stay up and uh, you also can allow it to scale at a proper rate.
0: That resilience thing is something people often miss um, and scaling at a proper rate. Expand on some of those points for me because one of the things I hear most often is surely though there's nothing decentralized gives me that I couldn't do better with a centralized technology. So talk to me about um, why is it that having this extra resilience is useful and, and why might I need it?
2: Well, let's just go with uh, something central or, you know, if a centralized technology, you've got it on, you know, let's say you're operating with multiple people on a, if you're just sitting in a silo and you only have to interact with yourself, then yeah, it's probably a centralized thing would work and just back it up somewhere. But if you're dealing with a, you know, international global basis, uh, if you have something, all your data or your network stored centrally, if that thing goes down any point in the entire network, is, uh, is a fail point. If somebody breaks in, in a central area, they can potentially steal all the data, uh, and, uh, take everything. That's why with blockchain, you know, even though there's been hacks into wallets and applications, the blockchain itself, like the Bitcoin wallet, still hasn't been hacked because you have to take over the entire network to uh, do something
0: faulty. So there's potential systemic risk of any central entity. You've got somebody who potentially has a back door, and with the amount of hacks um, like Equifax and a Target and Sony that we've seen, one large central database with a lot of personal information on it is actually a bit of a honeypot for people to attack, but how doesn't decentralization just make that more likely? Because now I'm pushing lots of different keys to lots of different people and lots of different user. We've seen lots of hacks with Empty Gox and um, Bitfinex lately, and um, and a whole bunch of others. What is it inherent in decentralization that gives it that that increased resilience? Is it does it mean that more people have to get good at managing keys as well?
2: If it's a, that that in itself is that's a that's an application layer. Right. That's like if somebody cannot manage your store, like I can build the biggest safe in the world for your house. Uh, but if you leave the if your password is one, two, three, four, and you leave it out in the open, what what good is that safe? Right. So at the application level, people have got to take some responsibility of how they manage their own keys. And that's why you have these things like for in the cryptocurrency world, like ledger nodes and all these things to secure your money.
0: Now I think that's um a really visual answer you can imagine somebody with the biggest safe in the world and uh with a piece of paper on top of it with the word with a password written over the top of it uh, entirely entirely possible. Uh so talk to me then about um Bluezel talk to me uh, about what what it is what it does why did you form this organization and and who's it for?
2: Okay. So when we started uh my CTO and I Neeraj, uh we started like I said mid 2014 uh We got acquainted by a mutual friend and started to say, let's just work on some blockchain projects. And at the beginning, we said, let's just do stuff. And we started working on Ripple and building gateways for them and understanding how the technology works. Then through 2015, you know, we kind of stayed in Vancouver trying to, you know, try this and that and really couldn't get real much traction. And we thought that, hey, enterprises is where to go because that's where all the talk is for blockchain adopting enterprises. There was all this noise about it. And we decided that, okay, if we're going to go for financial enterprises, let's go where the centers are. And we decided to move to Singapore and uh, headquarter the company there in February 2016. Now, in doing so during that uh, for about a year, we, you know, we set ourselves up there, got established and started working on um, some of these blockchain projects, primarily on Ethereum. And the two big ones we did were uh, a KYC slash uh, digital identity management system for uh, three banks, HSBC, uh, MUFG, OCBC. And then you also had, uh, we did a smart contracts, uh, I mean, sorry, smart insurance platforms for companies like AIA.
0: So talk to me a little bit about that first one, a KYC platform for three banks there. What's KYC and why did um, why did they get interested in using something like smart contracts to resolve KYC?
2: Um, so KYC was, if you look at um, the, KY, the KYC, you know, your customer, you know, it's a big thing, regulatory thing that's happening to banks. So let's just say I go into, Pavel goes into HSBC or John Smith goes to HSBC, they onboard him, you know, they collect their proof of income, residence, all that stuff they fill out. You know, they take some time in the back end to verify it, check it. And, you know, hopefully in a couple of days, they say, hey, you're onboarded, good to go. Now, if John Smith goes to OCBC, because he likes their Visa card better, he has to go through that whole process again. And now banks kind of realize that, you know what, people have multiple accounts, they go to different places to shop, This this is a pain for the customer. It's a pain for us to collect all this information at the same time. If we do it at one bank and do it to a shared ledger, like a blockchain, now we've got proof that this person is who they are. All the data has been validated by this bank. And so the network can trust it. So if you look at that situation now, I go to bank A, HSBC, get it done. I go to bank B, OCBC, show up. I like your visa. They scan me or they take my ID. They look on their blockchain. They go, oh, you've already been verified and validated of all your customer information. Let's open your account today.
0: So what's actually stored on a blockchain in that case? Is all your customer information stored on a blockchain? Does that mean that all of my public information is out there on this open, permissionless blockchain? Um, Or is it stored some other way and actually the blockchain is being used for something else?
2: So this is how it tied into our current product. This is what we realized, that the validation and the smart contracts could be on the blockchain like Ethereum. But we couldn't actually store efficiently, let's say, the proof of income, the data behind the person on the blockchain, because that causes scalability, gas price of Ether goes up. It just wasn't efficient. So in doing so, that's when we realized that, wait, we're validating doing the smart contract in a decentralized way, but where the files and the data is stored is in a centralized way. And we basically had to take an existing database system and kind of blockchainify it. Which wasn't really elegant. And that's when we realized that, wait, if we're having this problem, everyone's going to have this problem. And we should try solving that. Just basically saying, if you've got the blockchain to validate, you've got the smart contracts that are doing what it does. You've got file store, decentralized file storage from places like, you know, SIA storage, file come along who's doing a decentralized database? And that's that was kind of the aha moment around spring of this year. We said, let's start building that.
0: So decentralized database, different to the traditional centralized database, instead of it sitting on my laptop or in a data center somewhere, what you've actually got is a database that is sitting across many computers. Is, is that you're sitting across many legal entities, many countries, many companies? Is that what you're moving towards? And uh, do you see that as part of the overall Web3 stack? Because you mentioned you know, decentralized file storage, decentralized compute. How does the database fit in with those?
2: Yeah, so it would be complementary to that entire stack. That's how it is. It would be taking your uh, data. Let's say you've got a newsletter list, right, uh, stored in a database somewhere. We would take uh, you're taking that, you're sharding it. So basically, what we're doing is breaking it up into little bits of pieces and spreading it onto a you know entire network of nodes that are storing that data in, uh, in in swarm groups. And that's how it would work. So what would the benefits of that be to a large
0: company, like a bank or insurance company, or, or anybody that's going to deal with these, these data sets, if their data is now sharded all over the place? Does that make it less efficient for them to get hold of it? Or is it kind of um, more resilient? And is there a trade-off
2: there? So the two things are... Now, I don't, I don't, I can't see large companies using this thing for a number of years. Um, only reason is because they're a bit slower to adopt. I mean, they're just moving to cloud-based services now, uh, decentralized services way beyond that, right? So <laughs> it's really targeted at, uh, the small, the regular web developers, uh, application developers, mobile developers who are always kind of the cutting edge, uh, taking new things. Now, going back to that is you've got two things is, the speed has to be there. If you don't have the speed to uh, get your data or write to it, then it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. The developer needs that. So that's why we're using uh, a model of swarm, uh, swarming technique where you've got swarms of nodes that are almost like galaxies within the meta universe of uh, uh, Zell and actually oh meta is wrong because there's only one universe so you, blue cells a universe and then the swarms would be galaxies within that universe and so that's where certain data is stored and retrieved so it can be much faster and uh, no latency um, then the other thing that people are going for here is the resiliency that hey if one of these nodes goes down it doesn't matter the data's still up if somehow somebody broke into one of the nodes it can get caught fast but even if they did they just got a little piece of data they didn't get an entire data set all the, it was like basically taking a starbucks mug smashing it into thousands of pieces and spreading it all around amongst a bunch of nodes so even if somehow somebody got into one of the nodes all they got was like a little piece with nothing on it they could they got no context they'd have to take over the entire network to get in, to put the puzzle together yeah
0: and putting that gluing all of that back together your starbucks mug would be pretty challenging. So when I'm storing some, uh, I guess, sensitive data, like let's say I'm building my new uh, web store and I'm going to start selling um, CryptoKitties T-shirts. On this web store for selling CryptoKitties T-shirts, I might have to take some usernames and passwords. I might want to take some card information and uh, details. So if I stored it in BlueZell as a database, uh, it would, in theory, be more resilient and secure than just... Sticking it in a MySQL is—is is that your positioning?
2: That—that's our long-term goal. Is for if you're a startup company or a mid-sized one, scalability is an issue because all of a sudden, let's say your user base starts growing in a typical AWS type of system, then all of a sudden your costs start increasing. But maybe your revenues aren't there yet. Also, you know, you might have to pay more for enhanced security. What we're doing is by focusing on the SME uh, developers, we can give them something that's an enterprise-grade product that's at their price point
0: pretty powerful stuff so how do you position against the likes of a big chain DB who really took a database and blockchainified it which seems like a not dissimilar approach to the one you've taken
2: uh, I think there's always many ways to skin a cat um, especially in a b2b infrastructure world um, like if you look at it and if you're doing consumer plays there's always only just one winner right it's there's only one Facebook there's only one Twitter I mean Instagram turned on Instagram stories and they took a whole chunk out of Snapchat. Uh in the B2B world, if you look at database providers, there's, you know, probably like a hundred and they're all doing very well on a global basis. So with Big Chain DB, uh from what I know of how they've built it and designed, it works well for enterprises because enterprises want that kind of on-premise solution, a decentralized network for ourselves. Uh, you know, they can manage the stack, the technology all them on their own because it's on premise. What we're saying in our world is going after a different target market and saying, you don't need to manage a stack. You don't need to do anything. You need to just plug into our protocol.
0: Very cool. Um, Pavel, uh, that's about all we've got time for in today's interview. Um, before I let you go, where can people find out more about you and
2: Bluezell? Bluezell.com. That's B L U Z E L L E.com. From there, they can see our various channels to, uh, you know, our community groups to reach out in, Telegram. Um, twitter etc and then they can join our email list which uh you know comes out almost every week with the, the uh, a week in a review of our latest updates
0: pavel thank you for being on blockchain insider thank you all right thanks pavel and uh big thank you to my
1: co-host sarah and thank you for stepping in not a problem thanks for returning and uh, restoring order
0: listen back and i you did a better job of hosting than me and i'm generally feeling like i just want to not be in this chair anymore and and hand it hand over the reins to you um so hopefully we'll have you doing that much more in future Uh, but where can people find out more about you
1: so you can find me on twitter at seronimo or you can find the company i work for clearmatics on twitter also at clearmatics or you can find us at at clearmatics.com
0: fantastic all right um i have to thank our amazing production team here at 11fs uh, Laura Watkins our producer Michael Bailey our editor and of course assistant producer Petra alright uh, as a reminder 11FS the company who brings you this podcast are a challenger agency who help banks asset managers FMIs or anybody with a challenge in blockchain to achieve more we help you achieve that. if you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event we hope you'll get in touch hit up 11FS.com to find out more And thank you for listening. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen too. We'll have more Blockchain insider next week. But for now...